0: Atomic Moms is a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. Hi, everybody, I'm your host, Ellie Noss, and I celebrate and commiserate with best selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world in order to share their unique stories in this universal experience of raising a child. Don't forget to go to atomicmoms.com for our previous episodes and links to all our social media. Oh, boy. Who else ate all of their kids' Easter basket candy? Raise your hand. Um, I have a major sugar hangover happening right now. And I just got an email that uh, I have an acting job that's going to be in New York. And I was supposed to go later in the week. But I just got the email that I'm actually getting on a plane early tomorrow morning because of weather. So I'm scrambling to find childcare. care. Um, I'm doing loads and loads of laundry. It'll all be great. I just wish I could bring my toddler with me. Um, It's exciting, right? It's exciting. Uh, Last week, we interviewed Jess Zeno, and that was like a mom hangout uh, fun interview. She was discussing her new digital series for TLC. Uh, Check that one out. We called it The Messiness of Motherhood. And this week, we are getting schooled in the importance of being little, what preschoolers really need from grownups. Our guest is New York Times bestselling author, early childhood expert, former preschool teacher and director, and Yale Child Study Center lecturer, Erica Christakis. Okay, that was a mouthful. She talks to us on Atomic Moms about what's going wrong in our classrooms and the insane academic pressure we're putting on our young children that's undermining play-based learning. I find her work extra fascinating because she's saying all this stuff that a lot of our hippie mom friends are saying and a lot of therapists are saying – And she's got all the science to back it up. Um, She's a facts-based person. She's an academic person who's telling us that the worksheets and the tests are messing up our kids. After reading her book, I have to admit, I'm a little more in awe of my child and how quickly she's learning and how she's figuring it all out. And I'm being a little more respectful of her process. Yes, two-and-a-half-year-olds have a process (laughs) process. We all know this. We've got them, or we've had them. Um, But I don't think I knew that before I had a child. Erica has been interviewed by The Atlantic, The New York Times, and NPR. But we all know that Atomic Moms interviews are the best because we ask the rambling, sleep-deprived questions. And we're genuinely interested in everything they have to say. And we go off the beaten path. And we don't – we rarely stick. We don't – we, I won't say we don't, but we rarely stick to the same press release bullet points. This is also a guest who just says what she believes. And uh, you might recognize her name from the headlines last Halloween when she wrote an email to her Yale student residents regarding Halloween dress code. She didn't want the students to give the power to the school to decide what they can and cannot wear. And there was a lot of anger over this. A lot. And she said it best in a New York Times interview. In an, she said it best in a New York Times interview when she said, "I see myself as very anti-establishment in a sort of old-school lefty way." And so it's all over the internet. I encourage you all to read both sides and discuss. Now, her new book, "The Importance of Being Little," is already making me a better parent, and so I am so excited to share my phone call with her. So without further ado, early childhood expert Erica Christakis discussing her New York Times bestseller, The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grownups. Be right back. Erica, I'm so excited to speak with you. I feel like I'm a mom on the front lines right now, man. Uh, My daughter is two and a half, and she uh, had an earache all night. (laughs) Oh, no. And we just got back from Disneyland, and I've just chugged a huge coffee. So (laughs) I I am amped up, and I am ready for this discussion.
1: Okay. I I, uh, sympathize, empathize with you. I
0: I feel your pain. Well, I want to jump right in because you cover so much in this book. I feel like you've got 50 books in one, and (laughs) (laughs) it it seems like it would have been such an incredible labor of love. I'm curious, personally, how long did it take you to write this book? You know, it took me about a year, about 10,
1: like a little under a year, but um, as you know from reading the book, I really threw my whole life into it, and so in a lot of ways, the book kind of wrote itself because it reflects so much of my teaching experience and my parenting experience and my work with colleagues, and, you know, so... It was a labor of love for sure, and I know I did cram a lot into it, but I also felt like there was sort of an opportunity to really try to, um, to the extent that any adult can, I really wanted to kind of get into the head of a young child, and it just turned out to, there was a lot to say.
0: There is. And nothing bothers me more than when a book just has like one concept and then they just like beat it over the head 500 times. I really appreciated the scope of this because I feel like you had me thinking about a lot of things as a parent I never would have, I, I wouldn't have had access to this research. Oh, thank you. I'm
1: so glad you felt that way because I, I do know that some people um wanted you know the opposite like they want you know takeaways that kind of repeat the same idea and but I didn't want to write that book I really didn't you know I wanted to kind of look at the whole scope of childhood early childhood um you know for people who maybe are in the trenches like you are but haven't had a chance to you know look at the research and look at the sort of you know what what professionals are saying and I don't know I just felt like there was a gap where I felt like there were a lot of parenting memoirs and a lot of sort of how to books for teachers about, you know, curriculum and how to like organize your classroom. And, and I just, I sort of felt like there was this gap where we weren't seeing, you know, what is it like to be a young kid and what does the research tell us?
0: And it's great to have takeaways and sort of like, here are the bullet points, but your what seems to me that your whole kind of view on life, and obviously I don't know you except for this book, is that, (laughs) you know, we also need to take, you know, each situation is different. And you know, we have to be flexible in how we approach things because you talk about sort of like these blanket rules or these, you know, the bureaucracy of like, well, everyone's got to do it this way. And you're like, no, not necessarily. Like we need to each child and their specific um, way that they're doing things and, you know, value that.
1: Right. And also each family, you know, I think that also gets lost you know, that every family has a different approach, different, a different culture, different experience, um, different expectations. And and kids are, you know, wonderfully changing, and every child is different. And the other thing I really try to point out is that even within an individual child's development, you know, I mean, the word development really embraces, you know, it's about change. And I think a lot of times our way of um, thinking about young kids whether it's in preschool classrooms or even at home, you know, we, we get into this kind of static mindset where we think, okay, this is what kids are supposed to do. And um, But you know as a parent that your child is constantly changing. And sometimes you take one step forward as a child and then you take a couple steps backwards, like, you know, your kid has an earache and it doesn't sleep well. And then, you know.
0: I was reading this at Disneyland and I was laughing so hard because you have this one part. I was actually sitting in my daughter's stroller, which you also mentioned that you've seen at Disneyland. Oh. <laughs> I was... Because I was like, I'm reading, you know, I want to get in, you talk a lot about play. I'm like, I want to get in the play with the family, but I want to, you know, be prepped for this interview. So I'm reading, if my listeners can imagine, I'm reading, uh... Your book on my Kindle, and it's like dark out, and like (laughs) I'm in the stroller. But I was laughing so hard because you mentioned that that every parent knows that, you know, when you get one leap forward in one area of development, there's usually a backlash in the other. I mean, you don't say backlash, I'll say it because it feels like a backlash. Like, you know, my daughter is now, it feels like she knows every word, and she's, her her communication skills are like blowing my mind. But there's also, you know, man, transitions are really rough. And so it's like, right, you get the one right. good, and then, you know, there's always the payback in another way. Right, period. and
1: I, yeah, no, there's always the payback. Um, but I think, you know, another way of looking at it is just that, like, growing up is really messy and complex, and it's made more difficult by the fact that our modern lives, you know, put a lot of demands on kids um, that are, are hard for them. And, you know, that does not mean, I want to be really clear that I'm not suggesting that we, um, you know, that we should alter our adult lives i mean that's that's not what i'm saying but i think we have to be more kind of attuned to what it's like to be a kid and you know you are kind of constantly taking these steps forward and step back and you know lateral moves and it's it's confusing and i think a lot of um daycare and preschool settings are designed in a way you know to uh, meet adult needs um you know and and also just like the way that we respond to things and when we walk into a classroom and we see all these cute, busy, um, kind of crammed schedules and cutesy projects and stuff on the walls and all of that's kind of responding to our adult um, queuing system of like what we think quality looks like in a classroom or what we think learning looks like. You know, we have to kind of take a step back, like is that really busy, frenetic atmosphere helpful to kids you know is there real learning going on or is there just kind of like cutesy stuff going on that maybe isn't very engaging to kids um and
0: you talk a lot about going back to nature and uh this summer we're going to spend three weeks in northern michigan
1: oh nice
0: it's kind of embarrassing to admit that i was kind of concerned about what we would do all day um how we'd fill the hours, because. It's so natural to be out in the wild, and but we don't do that anymore. And your book really like drives that home, and this idea of like let her go, be in the mud, you know, like let her play with sticks and like you know follow a caterpillar for thirty minutes. Like it's not my place to sort of put these weird restrictions on her. Right. But the problem is, I think
1: what's happened is, you know, and I talk in the book about this sort of metaphor of habitat loss, you know, and I really, it's an intentional analogy to our environmental habitat loss, you know, where kids sort of play habitat. You know, we've encroached it and we've eroded it. And so a lot of times little kids actually aren't as sort of skilled, if you will, at knowing how to play in nature or hang out or just like, you know, make mud pies or whatever, because they don't have as much time. Um, I mean, your daughter's really young still, so she hasn't sort of had that taken out of her. But, you know, a lot of kids don't grow up having these long interrupted um, stretches of time to just kind of do their own thing and so it's harder than when you suddenly expose them to nature and the outdoors you know sometimes they're like well what do you want me to do you know i've been programmed my whole life (laughs) like it's not really fair all of a sudden to expect a young kid to know what to do um so i think we have to kind of repair that play habitat in a way and and give kids um you know a a lot of time outside and in mixed age groups and you know ways for them to kind of Disconnect from adults and just get into their own rhythm. But it, I think my point is, it, it can be discouraging as a parent if you feel like, oh, I'm really committed to this, but then you realize that like no one else's kid is outside yeah. in the neighborhood. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or you know, and so it's it's a struggle. And so we all have to kind of work as as um, a, you know, we all have to do our part to sort of repair that um, encroached play habitat. And it takes time. And one thing that I've noticed as a teacher and as a parent is that oftentimes when kids look bored, you know, our temptation is to kind of whisk things away and get them started on the next activity. But actually, I always say boredom is sort of um, the friend to the imagination. You know, sometimes being bored is a stimulus to the imagination, especially when you're outdoors. And so if your kid is sort of looking aimless, you know, there's a way in which you can really help coach the child. Well, you know, what else could you do? And I wonder if you could try this. or uh, Or maybe you just leave the kid alone and say, yeah, you know, sometimes it's hard to be bored. You've got to figure something else out. And it's hard for us because, you know, our adult lives have changed so much and we're all so over-programmed um, that it, it takes a certain courage, I think, to kind of just grit your teeth a little bit. Like, you know what, my, my daughter is struggling a little bit here and I'm going to see what she can do. And then the the wonderful thing is that kids are so endlessly surprising and they're so smart. Um, that when you do give them those long stretches of time, you know, they they figure it out. They figure out how to turn the play into something deeper Um, or the exploration if they're by themselves, you know, looking at, I don't know, an anthill or something in the sand or whatever. Um,
0: And and in the book, you talk about how sort of the anthill, like this idea that, you know, I think it's an anthill, and I'm like, yeah, it's good for kids to play outside, but what I really appreciate about your book is that you kind of break it down um in a way we're like oh no there's so much there is like deep learning going on yes
1: yeah well, really deep learning
0: and we're all you know we are all programmed to view play
1: as sort of in opposition to work you know because i think in our adult lives that's sort of how we approach things um Although interestingly, in a lot of office cultures, uh, I think people are starting to see the value of kind of playful thinking and recreation as a stimulus to productivity. So there's a little bit of an irony that we're kind of taking away. Play from kids at the exact moment that we're, you know, helping ourselves to a big dose of it. But anyway, um, yeah, we need to get over this kind of binary thing where, you know, play is on the one hand and work is on the other because there is so much deep learning. Like you said, so much deep learning. Um, when we give kids the time and, you know, we have to do things like give them open-ended materials um, rather than sort of toys that only have one use. You know, if you give kids blocks, um, there are all these studies that show that, you know, they use higher level language structures and you know they have more rich social interactions when they're playing with this kind of more open-ended material um than if you're giving them a kind of like electronic gadget you know that i don't know um
0: whenever i'm reading um about you know ways that i can better you know help my child i'm always i'm always looking back on like how it also relates to me as an adult. And I feel like so many of these problems in, um, at this age of preschoolers is like, they're also the problems that we have, you know, it's like our addiction to technology, our inability to connect, um you know not respecting emotions and like trying to squash yeah. them and so we do that in our own lives and we do it to our children and i was uh i was really struck by this one little passage if you don't mind my reading it um mm-hmm. where you talk about on the playground with kids getting in fights when they're playing and this idea that um we can you say teach children to explicitly disengage when they are feeling put upon you say mm. if you don't want to be chased stop running If a child doesn't want to be the cage cleaner in the animal hospital game, uh, she doesn't have to throw a battery at someone's head. She can insist on a new role or simply walk away. A new game will always be waiting. And I was so excited by that because I was like, yes, we also need to learn that. As adults, we can walk away. There's always a new game waiting. Like, we don't need to be put upon. And then, and so I took that as, you know, a lesson for me, but I also loved what you were saying that like, you say that to a kid and they're like, no, no, but I want to do this. Like that's part of their play too, is like that resistance and the arguing.
1: Right. So exactly. I mean, you, you're so right that, and we do learn from our kids and, and, you know, I, I, I wrote that with some humility because obviously you know, I'm a human being and I don't put that in front of my own life on a daily basis necessarily. But um, you know, it's true. And I also think, you know, we are uncomfortable with the with the discomfort. That um is inherent to all relationships, and i I know, as a teacher myself, you know in the book i don 't know if you remember, but I have this little sort of vignette about a teacher who 's kind of overly stage managing the emotions of these two kids who are really you know furious with each other they 're fighting over something, a puppet, and they 're screaming at each other and and the teacher sort of swoops in in this very. You know, stage managed way tries to control them, and then I reveal that you know actually that teacher is me, Um, because because you really do you know as as an adult whether you're a teacher or whether you're a kid and your child is like really acting out you know on the playground and you're being observed yeah there's this incredible sense of anxiety and fear of judgment and all this but I think those adult emotions or maybe they're just human emotions um, they do keep us from authenticity you know because relationships are messy. Um, and we do hurt each other, and so yeah, you can walk away, um, and you can also just tolerate the discomfort of um, you know the richness of a relationship and and I think that is something that 's you know super hard for adults to do and and but we have an obligation, I think, to teach our kids to do that and and it means I keep coming back to this use of time, but so many of the problems we have with little kids I think have to do with our rushing them. you know we don 't give them the time to just do stuff on their own timetable and you know whether your child is in childcare or whether you're with at home with your child um you know there are ways we can slow down and sort of open up the schedule and be less um you know vigilant in terms of like making kids jump through hoops to do certain things at certain times but it takes a shift you know where we i think we've all been programmed to think that if we have a schedule packed with activities, that that somehow means that we're like a good parent or a good teacher. And so we have to kind of slow down and have more faith in kids that, you know, sometimes less really is more.
0: And, and I wrote in my notes that, um, you know, not being, a, that the same idea applies to us. Like the, like for me, I'm not able to respect my own pace of life because I'm always trying to keep up with everybody else. And right. so I end up doing that with my child too. And I, we were at this hotel yesterday and there were, it was a, it was a really crowded, um, lobby and, but she was holding my hand. So she was safe and she was walking along and I kept having this urge to kind of like drag her or pick her up, <laughs> you know, to like keep the pace going. And it was like, right. wait. And then because of your book, I was thinking, no, she's walking, she's doing her job. Like she's walking at the pace she should be walking at two and a half. And these adults around us can walk around us. Right. But, you know, and I
1: completely hear what you're saying and I agree. However, I do want to express sympathy to the adult too. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a conflict in us that kids live in adult, in an adult sized world. And I really believe strongly that we need to kind of resize their world Um, which doesn't mean that you have to stay home with your child if you need or want to work, or it doesn't mean that you, you know, don't get to do adult things. But it means that where the child is, we need to kind of rescale, resize that environment for them. Um, You know, and we can do that in all kinds of ways that are more respectful of them. But I am also sympathetic. I mean, I have three now adult kids. Um, It's not easy. You know, sometimes our own needs and desires are in conflict with our kids. And the more we can sort of acknowledge that and not shame ourselves, but just be sort of observant of it, I think the better, the better off we are, you know, and, and we all make, um, Compromises, And, you know, I'm always very suspicious when people tell me, oh, you know, my child never has any screen time. I kind of think, hmm, I don't believe you, <laughs> actually, because, but, you know, every generation has their playpen, right? Right. Uh, yeah, so no, they
0: those. just have 12 nannies. That's how they get
1: around. <laughs> exactly, right exactly. Or they're just lying. Right. Um, so, you know, we have to be kind to ourselves. But, but to me, you know, when I wrote the book, I was really kind of trying to channel some of the observations that I've made as a teacher and as a parent and that I've learned from others. I've learned a lot of wisdom from really great teachers over the years. Um, and the one thing I've learned is that, you know, good educators, good parents, they tend to be good observers. You know, they tend to really know their children. Uh, and I think that's a huge step that, you know, sometimes we kind of overlook because we turn to the experts to tell us what our kid is supposed to do, which is sort of what you said at the beginning of this conversation. Um, And really, we need to just observe without judgment, you know, when we're relaxed, when we have time, we just have to kind of tune in more, Um, which unfortunately means we need to put down the iPhones. And I'm sure you knew that I wouldn't be able to get through a conversation (laughs) without saying that.
0: No, let's talk uh, about
1: it. You know, it's tough. I mean, I, my kids joke with me because they're in their 20s now, um, you know, that they would <laughs> they would have starved if, if <laughs> I had had um, an iPhone when they were little. You yeah. know, it's it's really, I mean, I'm joking, but it's, it's actually very, uh, it's very challenging, I think, to be present with all of the distractions. Um, and whenever and, and I'm
0: on my iPhone um, in Sabrina's presence, and I will admit that there are times when I am, yeah. I, I always pay for it. You know, it's yeah. like that disconnect, even if it doesn't seem like, you know, it's a, an issue, five minutes later, she'll have this huge tantrum and it's because there's been this disconnect where she's sort of like, where did you go? I mean, I remember yes. that when I was little, like I was in middle school or I guess maybe it was high school and all the parents had blackberries, and mm-hmm. I remember being on a ski lift with my dad and he's on his BlackBerry and you're like, are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And we're all addicted,
1: and we need to just admit it and actually start changing things. And it takes, um, you know, again, without judgment. I mean, this is just the way our society is. We have to fix it. And and it's this idea of being present. But I think if parents understand that, that observational quality is so important to relationships where you really know a child. Because if you think about, um, let's say you have a partner that you've been with for years and years, you know, people... Adults change, they go through lots of new experiences, but you know our basic sort of development has pretty much you know it's fairly fixed. but when you think about a little kid who's changing you know every day, um, it's it's important that we be tuned in you know to observe that. and I think the the um, the sort of carrot you know rather than just dangling a stick in front of people, the carrot is that you know the quality of relationship will improve <laughs> when you actually are more present. Uh, it makes parenting easier. It really does so
0: much easier. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, and you, I think one of the reasons that parents might resist tuning in and being present is like all of the anxiety that can come up when right. we stop a, our micromanaging. And and what I love about your book is that you you, I, I think I'll come back to it many times over the years because you bring up a lot of issues that parents end up having that create so much anxiety, Um, you know, the potential for allergies or, you know, learning disabilities, like all of these things that come up and you kind of say, hey, let's, let's look at this in like a a less fear-based way.
1: Right, right.
0: Exactly. And it, it, you know, we are in a
1: fearful moment Uh, In terms of parenting, I think a lot of that's driven by just our 24-hour news cycle and technology and, you know, our fears are so amplified in a way that, you know, one or two generations ago, you know, parents have always been anxious and always compared their kids to other people's kids and all that, but, you know, we didn't have this sort of megaphone aimed at us all the time, Um, and so that is very frightening. But I think if you get back to the fuel source for learning in the early years is relationships. Um, as sort of corny as that sounds or hokey or whatever, it's true. It's totally backed by science that um, children learn through relationships. And when relationships are solid, they can actually withstand a tremendous amount of um, of stress, in fact. You know, and if you look at the science of trauma, conversely, you know, kids who don't have strong attachments are really in trouble. Um, and so I think that's a positive message because, you know, people at all income levels, at all backgrounds, they can really strengthen that relationship with their child. Uh, and it's not always from, you know, trying to buy all the new gadgets or signing your kid up for all these lessons and things. Um, sometimes those things can be great, but they can also really take the, they can actually undermine the relationship at times. Um, if we become tired and frenetic and, and, uh, financially strapped and all that, um, but it's really that quality of the relationship. And so I do hope that parents will kind of, you know, maybe they'll come back to the book or maybe they'll just sort of reflect on these ideas um, as their children grow, you know, and as you do get more and more uh, challenges to, uh, I mean, parenting is scary. And, it, and actually, I can just guarantee, because my kids are older than you, your daughter, uh, it, it doesn't get easier, actually. It really, it really doesn't, I'm sorry to say. You know, there's actually, there's a wonderful... Um, Period, which uh, in sort of Freudian terms was called the latency period. You know, when kids are sort of seven, eight, you know, nine, ten, eleven, pre-puberty, that is a pretty magical stage, I will say, for many parents. Um, you know, where you can say, "Kids, put on your seatbelts." You know, they don't. You don't. Know, <laughs> the sort of drudgery and manual labor of parenting has yes. passed, and they haven't become monsters who hate you. So. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, no, I'm kidding. I mean, parenting oh, is know, great. No, I'm it's... not. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you do have some nice... Um, years to look forward to some golden years ahead
0: and then you'll be back in sort of the second round of toddlerdom back in the
1: second round of toddlerhood although although it's very exciting to be the parent of um, both a preschooler and a young adult you know for the same reason that there's this huge burst of development going on and you know it's exciting it's it can be really stressful and frustrating and um, but it's also just kind of miraculous you know to watch someone growing it Exponential rate. Um, it's, I think it's pretty thrilling too, uh, but you have to um, you have to take the long view. And you know, one of the things I mean, I know we're really talking about parenting now, but one of the things that really scares me about some of the early learning classrooms that I see is that we're not taking the long view. You know, we're trying to get kids to jump through hoops that will give us short term outcomes. You know, like every four year old needs to learn the alphabet or something like that. And sometimes that's really short term. Wise and long-term foolish, or I'm not even sure it's that short-term wise. But you know, we need to keep our eyes on the long-term prize, which is that we want kids who are exposed to language, exposed to relationships. You know, who can think independently, who can explore, who can be find sparks of excitement and creativity in the world around them. And that kind of stuff takes an investment in relationships. It, it takes respect for kids' time and rhythms and how they engage with the world.
0: I love so oh my god I love what you when you talk about how children are finding meaning in their lives and like in in their activities and oh. I think that is so beautiful and you describe preschoolers going to these museums and <laughs> studying art and it's like all the ways that we underestimate these brilliant little minds and yeah. we, we shouldn't treat them like I think sometimes when people are like, "Oh, well, you know, we need to respect them as humans." I sometimes in the past have thought like, "Oh, well, respect them like a little adult," and it's like, "No, respect them for what they are."
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And the idea that, wow, wait, I can take Sabrina to the museum, and I'm sure some listeners are rolling their eyes, like, "Yeah, duh." But when you listen, when you read this book, the way you know, sort of what these exhibits are, um, and they seem so out of the realm of what I would imagine a four-year-old appreciating and yet they're able to take so much out of the experience and so we should stop limiting um then to what you you know the worksheets and these little like these things that don't matter like get them in the world get them feeling you know mud and sand and let them go to museums and because I feel like we're constantly just sort of like putting them in a chair. Here's a pencil, learn how to write. And you're like, but but it should be about the communication. And you, and you just say again and again, you know, that they need to learn um, that it's about relationship and that it's about talking, not reading. That's right. And I think, you know, I think parents sometimes wonder, well, okay, that
1: sounds great, but you know, how do I actually put that in practice? and there are some really simple tweaks that we can do. Um, You know, one of them that I talk about at some length in the book is just the idea of asking open-ended questions instead of always sort of labeling things or, you know, um, closing a conversation, you know, like if you come upon a child who's drawing a picture, you know, the impulse in all of this is to say, like, oh, that's a cute little chicken you drew or whatever. Um, well, the child may not have drawn a chicken, or maybe the child doesn't even know what he's drawing. And it's so much more fruitful if you say, tell me about your drawing. Um, that's where the conversation opens up, you know, and I talked earlier about open-ended toys, like blocks, um, or playing in nature, you know these sort of open experiences I think give kids um, a channel into you know their imagination problem solving all these skills that we want them to have, um, including by the way you know i 'm not just talking about sort of fuzzy skills, I mean mathematical thinking um, reasoning you know vocabulary development i mean these are these are actual uh, skills academic skills that that kids need so you know, we're not just talking in the realm of feel-good, um, although that's important, too. But we're really talking about, you know, how do you prepare kids to function in the world at a high level where they're really thinking, they're really using their pre-wired, hardwired um, capacities. And it, it's all there. You know, we just have to kind of, um, I don't know, I keep saying resize. Like, we have to resize our expectations. We have to resize the child's habitat, you know, to reflect how children think about the world it takes some intentionality because we've we've um, we've kind of grown away from what you know is an authentic child's experience.
0: If a, if yeah. a parent isn't happy with where their child is in school or with their teacher, do you have any recommendations for what they can do to sort of? I mean, you talk about how you know most of a child's day is at home, um, isn't even at school. But what do you know if a, if a parent picks up this book and they get this feeling in their gut that this you know the school isn't you know they haven't read your book and they're not doing it because they're doing all the worksheets and they're doing all the things that they've been told to do um do you have any suggestions for them yes i do and and let me just say when
1: when i say that kids spend most of their time away from school people always balk at that and they kind of have a hard time with that, but it really is true. If you do the math, even the, um, even kids who are in long days of daycare, you know, they still are spending a lot of time. Um, some of it is asleep, obviously at home, but you know, that's sleep is important too, but you know, their core relationships are with their families. And that is a really positive thing to hang on to because even in very suboptimal situations where, um, and, and many, many families, uh, n- are not happy with the choices they have. Um, And and sometimes, you know, you pick a daycare program, for example, that is affordable or that's local, you know, doesn't involve a big commute for the parents. I mean, those are all very legitimate choices. And I think if we really focus on the primacy of the family relationships, you know, You don't need to feel guilty. Um, So what do you do if you're in a program where your kids don't have a lot of free time to play? um, They are doing a lot of rote activities. You know, it's just not as stimulating and exciting and and exploratory and relationship-based as you would want. Um, there, There are kind of a couple of different approaches. I mean, one is... I do think parents, as a group, need to get much more active about understanding the research. It's it's really out there. You know, there's just a world of evidence that play-based exploratory learning is the best approach for young kids. Um, and so, there are ways to push back with you know, center directors and principals. Um, you have to be diplomatic. It takes time and effort. But I think parents need to be more active uh, as a group, you know, in sort of saying, well, you know, I've noticed that there's very rapid transitions in the day, you know, there's very little time for recess. It seems like, um, you know, one problem in cold climates is that, you know, kids spend so much time putting on their winter clothes by the time they get outside, they have like 10 minutes outside, you know, so there are ways to gently say, you know, I'm concerned about um, the number of transitions or, you know, is there any way we could have a longer stretch of, open-ended time. If you start getting pushback, well, you know, we have all these standards we need to meet and blah, blah, blah. It's hard as a parent to push back against that, but I do want parents to understand that the research is really on your side, you know, and there's more and more and more evidence of it. You know, there was a study that came out of Tennessee looking at their preschool, uh, state-funded preschool program showing that kids in this uh, program actually did worse than kids who didn't have any preschool. I mean, that's a very damning result, and it really suggests that something is going on that we need to look at. Um, so, you know, the science is out there on play-based learning. It's it's just, you know, there's just a wealth of um, science. And, you know, I tried to summarize a lot of it in the book. But it's hard to be an advocate, and I understand that. And so I guess my other um, response is sort of almost polar opposite, which is, just have confidence in your parenting and also the research that shows that, um, you know, not every kid really benefits from preschool. And a lot of the evidence is um, weak or sort of unclear in terms of what, um, you know, what they're really getting if they have strong relationships at home. So you can really sort of, and it's hard for me to say that because I am a former preschool teacher but you know a lot of kids don't actually need it you know their parents may need daycare Um, if they could get really high quality preschool that's wonderful but it you know you can survive a lot if you have strong relationships but the thing is if you don't have the kind of environment i described at school you've got to let your kids the worst thing to do is to do more drilling at home and to buy into this kind of cycle where you're afraid your kid is falling behind because your school is telling you that your child doesn't know all her alphabet letters or whatever, and then to do drilling at home. That's the worst approach. You know, in those scenarios, you've got to really open up the play at home and really give your child a lot of time for exploration and relationships and, you know, just loving, playful activities at home. So I think, you know, I think the news is it, it's sobering that we really aren't doing um, as a society what we should be doing in, in early childhood classrooms. And I, I can't deny that. I mean, I really cannot. You know, it's time for a revolution. I believe this in early education. Um, but, you know, the reality is that kids learn best. Young kids learn through, best through relationships. The other thing you can do, is to invest in the teacher relationship, uh, and it's sometimes hard because if you don't feel like the teacher is giving you what you know is best for your child, it's very counterintuitive to try to um, see beyond that, you know. But you have to because it's it pays dividends. And I have a really great example in the book of, you know, a teacher who was kind of on the pedantic side and had rather dated, sort of boring curriculum, but she had this fabulous relationship with um, the child in her care, and and I think that. You know, the more you can sort of get to know the teacher as a human being, you know, even if you're not totally thrilled with the environment, um, that can really pay off too. Because, you know, all of us like to be liked and appreciated, um, and if we feel like we're being sort of, you know, disrespected or misunderstood, it it, it creates a barrier. So, um, that that is a little harder to pull off. Sometimes, you know, if you if you don't Feel great as a family um, in a situation. You know the the temptation is to run away, but if you don't have the luxury of doing that, then I mean I would really advise just trying to cultivate the relationship um, because that will help your child. If your child feels known, um, I'll just say I'll just say one more thing. You know, there's a. Um, we know from the research on quality in preschool programs that two things really matter. Um, knowledge of child development is very important. So kind of knowing, well, this is what a typical three-year-old looks like. That's very important for teachers. But they also really need to know the individual child. And that, you know, that gets back to the centrality of relationships. And I think as parents, we do have some control over that. You know, how does the teacher know our child um, you know, you, you can, you do have some control over that
0: at our preschool, we had the, you know, the parent teacher conference and, you know, they were saying they were going down the checklist of like what she does or, you know, and where she is and everything's good. And it, it, it but you, when you mention the relationship thing, I mean, I know, cause I, whenever I pick her up, I know that, you know, she's always hugging one of the teachers and that they're really close, but it's so interesting because yeah, I feel like parents, when we're in these parent-teacher conferences, we also have the ability to say like, yeah, and like, what does she find? What does my daughter find really funny? Or like, is there a, you know, what's, what's, how do you get a kick out of my kid? Like what? what?" And then that, because sometimes I feel like the teachers might not feel comfortable sharing that because they feel like that's not the work. Right right and and it's actually
1: it's absolutely true and we've all sort of bought into this idea that you know learning is sort of like what's on the walls and what's on the worksheets and what's in the morning meeting you know the calendar work and all these sort of things that aren't necessarily um backed up either by science or just by common sense and so yeah i think asking like what do you know what are you seeing in my child you know what's what are her vulnerabilities you know what what does she do well but not I guess I wouldn't even say it that way. I mean, I think I would just say it the way you phrase it. Like what, you know, what makes her laugh? Where do you think she's? Um, uh, Who's what her best do friend? That,
0: what, where does she like to hang out in the room? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: No, and I think I think teachers need to. Um, Parents need to, I said they need to get more active. They need to push back more. You know, we've had this uh, extraordinary shift in what's gone on in preschools and kindergartens in the last 20 years, and it's really been documented in studies. Um, You know, kindergarten really is the new first grade, as they say, um, in terms of expectations. This has been quantified by, you know, numerous researchers, and that's trickling down to preschool expectations, too. Um, For example, kindergarten, you know, teachers 20 years ago only like, I don't know, I think it was 20 or 30% of them thought that kids should learn how to read by the end of kindergarten. Now it's 80%. Well, the human brain has not changed that much. Um, so we're, you know, something is changing. We're, 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 we're changing our expectations of kids very rapidly in ways that are stressful for kids um, and also which underestimate them, you know, because it's this kind of weird mismatch where some things are too hard and some things are too easy for kids, um, so I think parents really do have an obligation and a right to push back and to say, you know, I keep reading more and more stuff in the media, more studies coming out, you know, and I'm just, I'm concerned that there's not as much play in the classroom as, as we need to see.
0: Everyone's going to slip your book like under the door or like in the yeah. cubby holes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's my dream. I mean, I
1: honestly think if we could um, really have a sort of sea change where we start seeing, early childhood through the eyes of young kids. You know, we would stop foisting a lot of these kind of cutesy crafts on them, you know, the turkey that you trace with your hand and, um, you know, with the little fake feathers and a lot of this stuff that's not that meaningful to kids. Um, you know, I always say, like, do we want it, we, do we want children to make something or do we want them to make meaning? They're two different things. Um, if we could sort of, you know, just resize the early childhood environment, and that means looking at kids and what what excites them and what is difficult for them, we would really quickly start making changes. And I, I think we can. I really do.
0: Thank you so much, Erica. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. I, I asked Erica to speak for with us for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> we, this is way <laughs> longer than that. I really appreciate all your time and um, your book. And I just want to share with you that the the title, The Importance of Being Little, like whenever I see it, it just makes me tear up. Um, oh, I'm so, so happy to,
1: um, to hear that you, that it made, you know, meant so much to you because it really was a labor of love for me. And, and it's, yeah, I really care about it so much. So thank it's you very absolutely much.
0: Absolutely change. Um, I already feel like a shift and that sounds crazy, but I do like, I'm going to, you know, uh, observe my daughter observing. We're both no. researchers in this. Um, yes, so- you
1: are. You really are. You're both on that journey. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm and your interest. And I really appreciate it. And I wish you all
0: the best of luck with your family. Thank you so much, Erica. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. I'm going to get ready for New York, and I'm going to give my little one a couple extra big squeezes. So until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, and rock on, Atomic Moms.